0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, gang, happy Thanksgiving. It is that time of year when, at least nominally, we're supposed to be giving thanks, being grateful. But as is the case with so many positive human qualities, we don't often get a lot of specific instruction about how to actually be grateful. To be a little cute about it, how do we elevate gratitude beyond mere platitude? That is what we're gonna talk about today. Dara Williams, my guest, is a meditation teacher and psychotherapist. She's a graduate of the Spirit Rock Insight Meditation Society teacher training program, and is also a guiding teacher at IMS. Not only has she been meditating for more than 25 years, she's also been a clinician and administrator in the field of mental health for roughly that same period of time. She currently maintains a private practice in Manhattan. In this conversation, we talk about how to start knitting gratitude into your everyday life, or as she says, how to think about gratitude like personal hygiene on the level of taking a shower. We talk about whether gratitude is possible when everything sucks, how to avoid spiritual bypass, which she will define, the opportunity that suffering brings for happiness, and how to take our suffering less personally, the power of reminding yourself that you are nature, our unconscious fascination with creating difficulty in our own lives, and her semi facetious belief that gratitude should be the fifth Brahma vihara. For the uninitiated, the Brahma viharas are four qualities of mind, four mental skills, trainable via meditation that include friendliness, compassion, sympathetic joy, which is being happy for other people's happiness, and equanimity. Just to say before we dive in here, we first posted this interview back in October of 2020, right after we ran a whole series of episodes about the Brahma viharas. That was also in the heart of the pandemic, so you're going to hear a few references to that. thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deep, Deep Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of vice. It takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers I want to share a recent discovery with you, G-Defy Shoes. That's G-D-E-F-Y Shoes. G-Defy is a footwear company on a mission to relieve your knee, back, and foot pain. As many of you may know, because I've complained about it, I have dealt with knee and back pain uh, for many, many years. So I'm super excited to check out these g GDefy shoes. First thing to know is that every pair comes with two free custom orthotics to align your body perfectly. Then there's the patented VersaShock trampoline technology in the heel, which absorbs harmful shocks and provides positive, renewed energy, empowering you to tackle your day. The other thing to know is that GDefy has integrated a strong structural system into their shoes that improves your posture and encourages you to walk using your calf and other major muscle groups. Don't just take my word for it. Read the countless customer reviews raving about the pain relief and amazing comfort people have experienced after wearing GDefy shoes. Like I said, I'm excited to check them out myself. Experience pain-free living for yourself and visit GDefy.com. That's G-D-E-F-Y.com and use code happier 30 to receive 30 bucks off your order of $100 or more. Hello, Dara. First time on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Yes, it is. I'm really excited you made time for this, so thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. (laughs) You said something super interesting. Well, you said a bunch of super interesting things before we started rolling. The first one I want to latch on to and bring back into your mind right now is you said... You appreciate that we've been doing this focus on the so-called four Brahma Viharas. And you said, I think there should be a fifth Brahma Vihara, which is gratitude. And I love that. And I want to know, is gratitude possible when everything sucks?
1: Oh, that's a good question. (laughs) Is gratitude possible? Not only do I think it's possible, but I think it's essential in order to navigate the suckiness <laughs> you know <laughs> like and when we think about gratitude it doesn't have to be this big grand gratitude can be something as simple as waking up in the morning and really centering oneself or really before this I do this even before my feet hit the ground it's like oh thank you not to anybody or per- but just the expression of gratitude through my heart and mind um, that I'm here for another day and then I do the listen and I hear my mom. I live with my 96 year old mom. I hear her start moving around downstairs. I'm like, oh, mom's good, you know. And then I hear my husband, and then the cat jumps on the bed and we get a little morning greeting. like those kinds of just day-to day kind of small, but incrementally acknowledged opportunities for gratitude really help to serve as a cloak or as a holding to navigate all the other stuff that mostly all of us do from the time we start engaging with the world until the time we go to bed at night. So yeah. Yeah. And I also think maybe that aspects of gratitude are a natural kind of organic unfolding if one is engaged with metta or loving kindness or karuna or compassion as its English word or mudita, sympathetic joy, or upeka equanimity, any one or all of those together, if we're in the practice of those that also kind of fuels or strengthens this turning towards remembering that we all have something to have gratitude about. So that's kind of like what just kind of showed up there in relationship to that. And and the other thing about gratitude, yes, certainly these times are really off the charts. And I'm a good one for saying, you know, throughout history, there's been off the chart times for groups of people at various different times, but there's something about the coalescing or the coming together of numerous, so many challenging and difficult things, along with the kind of really challenge with moving away from all of that, creating the space from all of that. Sometimes you may not be feeling love in your heart. (laughs) Sometimes you may not be feeling equanimous, like this, sometimes you may definitely may not be feeling joyful, but we can always find something. Always find something that we can have gratitude for. And every person, every person I don't know if this podcast, is, I'm sure it is probably heard outside of the United States as well. But if I'm speaking to the United States, every person here, including First Nations people, including the indigenous people of these lands. Come from people where there were hard times. <laughs> you know, if you're a descendant or your ancestors are immigrants from someplace else, you can bet there were hard times. You know, certainly if you're African American or um, out of the African diaspora, you know that there were hard times and sometimes continue to be hard times. And certainly if you are indigenous to this land, if you come from peoples who are indigenous to this land, from this land, you also know that there were hard times. So hard times are not new. It's not a new place to be. It's not a new happening in humankind. But fortunately for us, um, beyond our ancestors needing to also just survive in those times, you know, like have food, have shelter, have water, all those kinds of things. That's pretty much for many of us, not all of us, but that's pretty much available to all of us. So even that is something to be, I stand under the shower like, oh, I am so glad to have this shower and that hot water hits my back and the muscles start to relax and
0: gratitude. If I'm hearing you correctly, though, you are not saying we should use gratitude to force ourselves into the land of eternal sunshine and pretend that the problems that are here don't exist.
1: Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, you know, it's the duality of goodness and difficulty or, uh, you know, in in Buddhist terminology, the joys and the sorrows. That's like given. And it's actually, this is one of the other things you um, were speaking to that we spoke about in terms of managing expectations. I think that's the way either I said it or you gave it back to me. And it's like, who said who said it was always supposed to be rainbows and flowers? Like, who said that? Nobody said that. We're probably more prone even in this country to um, attach to that particular perception or understanding or perspective or lens that in the background always is that there's some promise that things should be really great all the time. (laughs) But that's not true. So yeah, absolutely not. And also not to be engaged with like, spiritual bypass, you know, which is kind of where you're, that comes from me in terms of what you just put out there.
0: Spiritual bypass, meaning that you pretend you've got pixie dust coming out of your butt, but actually you're just not dealing with your problems.
1: Dealing with your individual challenges dealing with the collective challenges of our time dealing with the historical challenges that are manifesting now in these times so there's a understanding actually that there's now a lot of talk about trauma and vicarious trauma and those kinds of things and and all of that is useful helpful and necessary to understand. And when there are practices or resolutions for those experiences to engage with them. One of the things that's the byproduct of can be, can be the byproduct of trauma is traumatic growth, you know? And it's almost like when I think about nature, right? I'm just imagining this, of course, but thinking about when it goes from winter to spring and the plants that are reborn in the spring have to struggle to get up out of that dirt, like just crack it open a little bit and get that one tendril out to seek the sun. You know, I really don't know of a lot of opportunity for joy and happiness without having had the opportunity for challenge and suffering. You know, I think that they coexist together and, and, um, that you actually can't have joy and happiness without having engaged with difficulty and challenge.
0: I'm thinking about a conversation I had recently with a meditation teacher. Her name is Tuarei Salah. She's in, Seattle, dude. Do you do you you're, you're laughing? Oh,
1: she's my girl. Oh, okay, I, so you know Yeah, her. Okay. I love Tawary. Uh huh.
0: So she and I were doing an interview about joy, and I asked her a similar question, like, "Okay, well, are you just putting on rose-colored glasses here, and you, you know, you're not seeing things for what the way they are?" And she was saying, "No, no, no. The joy is what sustains you, so that you can do what you need to do, absolutely. in the world, absolutely."
1: Absolutely, I would concur with that and say that that's very healthy way to understand and hold joy. And gratitude. Yeah. And gratitude, absolutely gratitude. Also the gratitude that comes from being able to maintain, sustain, or even just cultivate equanimity. Like, you know, there, there's certain circumstances and situations that are in our lives, in our country that are operating right now here And one of the things that I will often say to people is, well, why are you expecting anything else? There's been consistent, ongoing evidence that this is how this is. And the suffering happens because you keep wanting that to not be true. You keep wanting it to be different. You keep wanting it to be something else. you know. But when you can open to, ah, this is how it is, and you can then bring your body, mind, and heart to that realization, to that recognition, to that awareness, and engage with those circumstances from that position, there's a whole lot of freedom that opens up. Not only a whole lot of freedom that opens up, but then you can actually begin to ascertain for yourself, do I need to do anything about this here? Or do I need to just leave it alone? You know, so the gratitude for that kind of discernment that's possible is also another, for me, big piece of moving through these times, operating in these times.
0: When you talk about the sort of double helix, the inextricable relationship between joy or good stuff happening and pain and suffering that you can't have one without the other, I mean, to me, that makes sense in theory. But when bad stuff happens to me, it still feels wrong.
1: Ah, well, then the the something to look at is like, why does it feel wrong? Like, yeah, when pain and suffering happens to you, it hurts. It might be like terrible, but why does it feel wrong?
0: I don't know. Maybe some subconscious assumption that this suffering is for other people that I see on TV or whatever, but you know. I shouldn't be touched by the realities of the world.
1: (laughs) Maybe that's one good interpretation for sure, but that's a really good, um, arising. That's a really good coming from you because those are the kinds of places where the suffering really, uh, like, (laughs) woohoo, here we go. Let's go down the rabbit hole with this. Whereas the, challenges the difficulty the pain and suffering that you may have that you may experience that may be in your sphere is actually an opportunity to be with this other component of living you know i mean i think us human beings because every all beings suffer you know or all maybe i should say all beings have pain but maybe all beings suffer too and speaking about our animal Relatives and other realm that we sometimes forget we are a part of <laughs> because we have language and higher order thinking, but we are animals, human beings are animals, and because our animal brothers and sisters don't have language, like a lot of suffering exists or resides in the territory of language and cognition cognating, yeah, so if we could not i mean that's what's gotten us, that's brought us a lot of the good stuff too you know languaging and being able to um, intellectually configure and create and all that kind of stuff so this is not a commentary on uselessness of that it's but in the process of raising that up in the process of elevating that aspect of being and not remembering to bring parity with the heart that's the places where we get into trouble. And so I think these times, actually, um, and even when you were talking about um, the suffering being wrong, these times are almost demanding, maybe i would use the word demanding, but certainly calling for us to choose differently and to spend portions of our times cultivating other aspects of beingness that center in the heart. Yeah. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, (laughs) Um, given that um, you are a successful white man in America, that there may be something about that positioning that lends itself to the, this is wrong, something's not right conversation. So, You know, I mean, for many of us that walk in different bodies, I think you may have even heard this, I don't know, among, you know, that three-week period or that month after the numerous deaths and murders of Black bodies. You might have heard from some of your colleagues or from other folks, like, Black people, like, weren't surprised. But when you exist in a particular reality... One's engagement with the world outside of oneself is determined by the positioning of that reality. So that might be another thing that might be an operation, might be operating, and it may not be the answer to it all, but it might be one of those little threads in there that could lead to making that interpretation.
0: I think to call it a little thread would be an understatement.
1: Well, you know, I'm trying to be serious, so This is our first time engaging with each other. I want you to think about it. So.
0: No, no, I think it's 100%. It was on my mind as the words escaped my lips. <laughs> uh, yes. So I, I guess I had two responses to what you said. One is just a robust yes mm. that somebody who has had the amount of luck that I've had not only— pigmentation and gender-wise, but also coming from a upper-middle-class family of two loving parents who just gave me every opportunity in the world, I see in my own mind a certain unreasonable expectation to defy gravity or to defy the laws of the universe. So yes, 100% to that. I don't know anybody else's mind other than my own. Is it the case you think that people? That there are substantial numbers of people who, when, you know, a very personal inconvenience and or tragedy befalls them, say you get gout and your feet hurt a ton, that do you think there are many people whose minds say, oh, yeah, this sucks, but that's just part of life. And this happens. Why not me?
1: I think there are some people that have that response. And I think that there are some people that get to that response. Like it might not be the first response, you know, when there is suffering and it kind of is, um it appears like it's permanent or that it's ongoing. There comes again, not for everybody. There's always people that fall outside of the general, um, um, Way, but eventually you get. I'm thinking about my mom with her arthritis and her body pain. She's in pain all the time. You get to a place where you surrender, like this is how it is. And so, but there's a release or a freedom that comes because once that happens, then you can go about. Well, is there anything to be done about this? And if there's nothing to be done about it, then then you can get to okay. Well, let me get my mind right to be able to bear, tolerate, move forward with conditions the way that they are.
0: Just a few days ago, we posted an episode where I was speaking to Roshi Joan Halifax about one of the many, many Buddhist lists. One of the Buddhist lists is called the eight worldly winds, mm-hmm. and there it's sort of four dichotomies, pleasure and pain, fame and ill repute, gain and loss, and praise and blame. And what I like about that, why it's coming to mind in the context of the discussion you and I are having right now is that simply by calling them wins, it depersonalizes them and puts you in a mind state that makes you more likely to be able to see, oh yes, suffering is part of life. I don't need to make it worse by getting into the why me of it all.
1: Yeah, and like really believing. So, you know, we're in this conversation in relationship to um, Dharma and Buddhism, like really believe in what the man said. The whole tenet of Buddhism is built around there is suffering. Before any of the other lists, before any of the other understandings, before any of the, like the man came out of the, <laughs> those years of uh, uh, development Coming out saying there is suffering. There's a reason why. There's something you could do about it, and here's how you might do that. The whole <laughs> philosophical underpinning of Dhamma is based on that. And so, like I say sometimes when I'm teaching a um a retreat or whatever, it's like like believe him, try it on. I really doubt. You no, know, I didn't know the man. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't come from a lineage that knows that man. Um, But I can't imagine that anything that came out of his mouth came out of his mouth just because. Like there was a lot of understanding, a lot of depth and a lot of uh, personal relationship uh, to whatever it is that he might have been purporting. When you look at any histories, that's a thread that's predominant and clear all the way through. But a lot of our suffering is predicated on our intellectual misperceptions about life, about how we're living, you know? I'm sure that many, many, many years, of, I'm, I'm first generation out of poverty, and um, uh, as as many people are at this time, people that are children of immigrants, you know, like, sometimes the suffering is around, like, can I pay my rent, <laughs> like? Is there food I can have to eat? You know, am I going to lose my job? Like sometimes the suffering is around kind of like those basic ordered things that we need to be able to exist in the society. You know, sometimes the suffering is caused by mental distress or mental illness, but a lot of the suffering that's not kind of um, tethered to um, either a biophysiological piece or the necessity of having food, water, shelter, um, in our life is basically, as you were pointing to, I think made up that second arrow, that's the parable of the second arrow where, you know, there's, um, there's sorrow and suffering and pain, you know, this, um, <laughs> uh, I was walking through the woods and I didn't have on a bright orange coat and this hunter thought I was a deer and, Shot this shot and it got me in my leg and oh my God, I'm glad I'm alive, but this is killing me. And oh, if I had just remembered that I should have taken out the garbage before I went for this walk, the timing would have been off. And oh, maybe I need to put my finger down here. You know, like when you do that with your tooth, with your tongue and your tooth and keep it. And every time you touch it, it hurt. We do that. We do that as is. There's a uh, unconscious fascination, I think, with difficulty and challenge because we keep recreating it. So there's some addiction there. There's so I don't know what it is. This is actually occurring to me for the first time as I'm talking to you now. But there's something maybe I don't know if it's neurological. I don't know if it's conditioning. Like I don't know what it is. But there's something that keeps us creating suffering for ourselves.
0: For the uninitiated, the parable of the second arrow, which Dura gave us a sort of updated version of is <laughs>
1: Yeah, definitely guys
0: walking through the forest. This is from the Buddhist scriptures or somewhere, but the guy's walking through the forest gets hit by an arrow, and then he gets into a whole discussion in his head of, you know, I'm now gonna be late for dinner. Why am I always <laughs> the guy who gets hit by an arrow? Blah, blah, blah. That is the second arrow that's inserted right. voluntarily. And and that makes a lot of the inevitable suffering of life even more unbearable Mm -hmm. yeah I would agree with that much more of my conversation with Dara Williams right after this I always love it when uh, the people behind a product that my family already uses tell us that they want to be sponsors of this show today it's Tidy Cats as you may know we have uh, an unreasonable amount of cats four of them so we use a lot of kitty litter and Tidy Cats is great Uh, They have a product called Tidy Care Alert, which uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help you put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Whether you have one or four cats, they make it easy to keep track. Plus, it's low-dust and lightweight with long-lasting ammonia control from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. I'm not a vet, but I do love cats. Tidy cats. Check them out.
2: When you shop online at dell.com slash deals, you'll have access to leading edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's dell.com
1: slash deals.
0: Let me go back to gratitude for a second, just to wrap that part of our discussion up because we began with you extolling the virtues of gratitude. I think, and I love, I I, I think there's a lot of science to suggest that uh, grateful people are happier, that gratitude has all sorts of benefits, and it's a a really cool way to hack the negativity bias that evolution bequeathed us, where we're always kind of looking for threats, because there aren't really as many, we we need to look for some threats, but there are not as many threats as our minds would have us believe. The problem that I suspect many people run into when they hear about gratitude as a practice is just remembering to do it, booting it up as a practice. Because the other thing about evolution is that it bequeath doesn't mind that it isn't so good at creating healthy habits. So do you have thoughts about how we can start to knit gratitude into our lives?
1: Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, it's <laughs> we also have a tendency to want to make things complicated or uh, it's Really simple, especially when you're first engaging with creating that connection, creating that automatic turn or remembering towards gratitude. Put a three three by five card up on the mirror in the bathroom. First thing you're going to see when you go in the morning, you know, can have a box by your bed that you throw, you write down a gratitude thought and put it in that box. And then every now and then you go pick one out and you read it you know, the real kind of simplistic, um, because it is until you take it on like a practice, like once you take it on like a practice, it will become just a part of beingness. But, you know, there's steps and things that need to happen between now and there. So it's not that you will always necessarily have to have a box or a three by five card. Um, One of the things that I really... um, found helpful in cultivating that practice is music. Like listening to music that really resonated in my body that brought forward that felt sense of gratitude and appreciation. And so music is really because it really goes straight to the body, it bypasses the mind. Being present <laughs> being present actually supports being in gratitude. You know, like now you and I both live on the uh in the northeast, so the trees are absolutely gorgeous. And you can actually take gratitude on like a practice. You could take it on like a practice, you know, sitting or walking and setting the intention to remember to sit in gratitude and let that infuse the body, let that infuse the heart, let that infuse the mind. So there's various Various practice, various things that one can do from the simple to the more, I won't say complicated, but involved maybe, um, that we have to employ. And, you know, another thing in that's really a misnomer, I think, that we cling to in this culture is that, oh, I, after I've done this for like 10 times, I should get it. <laughs> I should have <laughs> it, you know. But it's kind of like we take a shower every day or every other day to clean off. We always have to take a shower to clean off. It's not, you don't get clean (laughs) unless periodically you clean yourself. And so this notion that there's some place to get where gratitude, any of the Brahma equanimity, joy, compassion, or love is just automatically going to, because we're in the world, we're in the world. We have little to no control over what's happening externally. And we have a nervous system. We have a nervous system, that biophysiological nervous system, which is going to react in response to conditions and challenges. So we have to ongoingly, intentionally cultivate these states of heart and mind that are the medicine kind of, the medicine to these times, to difficulty and challenges and not be surprised when when they show up. Don't waste our time being surprised. Like, oh, okay, hard day today. Let me see what I can do to bring some balance there. And sometimes it doesn't work. <laughs> sometimes it right. doesn't work.
0: Right, right. Back to moderating expectations. Yeah. There was so much in there when you, uh, in, the, in that answer about like how we can start to actually get gratitude into our lives. And I love the bit about music. I really see the fact that the more awake you are, the more accessible gratitude is because when you're lost in your own stories, the chattering mind doesn't tend toward gratitude. But if you're awake and aware, you're beauty and delight is going to be on offer in ways that they never would if you're stuck in habitual storylines. And then I guess the question I wanted to ask is, given that you referenced it as the fifth, you know, somewhat facetiously, I think, as the fifth Brahma Vihara, do you think that, and I think maybe we already intimated as much, but do you think that the cultivation of friendliness, compassion, uh, sympathetic joy, joy mm-hmm. equanimity... That some way that that those culminate in, in some gratitude or result in some gratitude as well?
1: Yeah, I don't know if I'd use the word culminate, but I definitely would say that um, create the conditions for gratitude to manifest. Yeah, um, I just want to go back and say one thing in relationship to the conversation we're just concluding or bringing to this place that I mentioned, but I might not have mentioned it this definitively earlier, where I might've spoken a little bit about ancestry and how all of us, have ancestors that navigated hard places Mm -hmm. and had to have navigated them even with whatever amount of difficulty there was, navigated them at least successfully enough that you and I are sitting here today. Mm -hmm. Whatever they had to manage to live, (laughs) they did so that we're here today. Because a lot of people aren't here because ancestors didn't make it. And so one of the places for me that brings immediate gratitude, like that just generates it in the heart and in the body is to remember the people I come from, you know, not like living in the past and staying back there. again. I'm talking about ancestry, but even in terms of like, like you, I come from two parents who did everything to set my life up to win. And pretty much that's the result they got. I have to say I'm blessed and have a life that really is a tribute to their struggles and their intentions and their commitment to um, myself and my brother. And so whether it be my parents or my grandparents or even further back in terms of the ancestral line, the people, I don't know their names or anything about them, but I know that they survived and did what they had to do long enough (laughs) so that whoever the ancestor was that became the ancestor that became the ancestor that became the ancestor that led to my mom and dad and then me. And so that's kind of like an immediate way that I connect into gratitude. So I just wanted to throw that in there because that might be useful for some other people, because there's a little bit, it's in, in some ways it's personal, but in other ways it's not personal.
0: Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, I apologize to any listeners if I've told this story before, but there was a time when I was volunteering in a hospice and you know, I was talking to a elderly gentleman who obviously didn't have long to live, and I was asking him about fear. And he said, you know, the fear's kind of gone away. I've entered into kind of, and this is not a guy who I think had any spiritual practice. I, I believe he was a professor, but He said he started to, and I hope this is relevant. It's just what came up in my mind as I listened to you talk about ancestors and then I started thinking about, you know, like we're somebody's ancestors too. Um, mm-hmm. This guy said to me, you know, I've just kind of started to view myself as part of nature.
1: Yeah. 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 That's what I was saying before when I was reminding us that we're animals, we are nature. Like we're not outside of it, even though some of the things we're doing, we think we are like that. <laughs> we're like controlling it. Or if you just reside there, that's even a better word. If you just reside there with that awareness, that'll take you far in any of these um, domains and places that we're speaking about. Yeah.
0: But I had asked you a question about the Brahma Viharas, uh, and you gingerly uh, corrected (laughs) me on culminate, but the cultivation of these Brahma Viharas, in your view, create conditions that are right for the arising of gratitude. Did I hear you right on that?
1: Yes, you did. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But I also don't think that it's necessarily hierarchically linear. I don't know if that's a word, but hierarchically linear. I think that it's more like you spoke about a helix before or more intertwining or more circular. That it's not that if you practice A, B, C, D thing, then this thing will be the result of that. But that as you move back and forth, tending to the heart, cultivating and creating the beingness that comes when one can really engage. Clearly, you're hearing that one of the domains of Dharma practice that I love and that I have incorporated as part of the mainstay of my practice is the Brahma Viharas. So, you know, there's um, wisdom is good too, and I'm I'm in there too. But the thing that I, the place that I sit, what I fall into, what holds me, is the Brahma Viharas. And why? so, why? Yeah. I think it's because um, for me, anyway, personally, the wisdom and the knowledge and the awareness sits here in the heart and not in the mind. Like, this is a true place to me. The heart is a true place that I cannot be fooled by. The brain, the mind can take me all kinds of places. Um, But the heart is true when you can listen, when you can listen, when you can see, when you can see. And so I don't think it's necessarily that either or is more efficient or more getting me to the place where I might be, but I really, really, really do believe in the other piece that you were bringing forward in terms of the balance, and for so long there's been an imbalance where the and i'm not I'm talking about as it's manifested in our culture, I'm not talking about the practice of Buddhism in Asia I'm not talking about um the origination of the philosophy and the practices with the Buddha, but in our culture there's been a uh, it's it's starting to balance out i think but there's been an absence of the feminine and there's been an absence of the heart and that's what to keep singularly or solely cultivating the wisdom aspect of practice it's almost like it's a house of cards like there's no there's no foundation there in that so that is purely my perspective <laughs> my uh, colleagues. And, and, you know, I don't know what others would have to say about that, but there's an integration of the heart that I think is one of the places where there's real hope for balance to come real hope for being able to tolerate or be with the difficulties and the challenges in a way where we do no harm to ourselves. Yeah.
0: Well, I see that some in my own practice. I don't know that I can speak for the Western Dharma scene overall and whether it's, you know, has been insufficiently female, although I suspect that that's true personally. But on safer ground, when I talk about my own practice and, Mm and my own practice, I know I leaned too hard on, like, understanding Buddhism and boosting my own concentration in my meditation practice and making sure I was noting the crap out of everything and... It was when I started, I did a couple years of quite intensive Brahma Vihara work that it really changed the nature of my practice. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, and the practices of, we don't know, right? The practice of concentration, the kind of more wisdom practices might have been very useful in setting the stage for what was yes. to come, Yes. Um, out of the practices of the heart. I'm really talking about an integrated practice. And when I used the word feminine, I was actually, how I was using it was in relationship, not so much in relationship to like the female, but the energetics of feminine in relationship to the energetics of masculine, of which we all hold, even if we are someones that walk in a non-gendered place those energetics still exist within all of us. And it's just been out of balance. So like the utilization or engaging with music, like engaging with nature, like these are things that these are places and ways and spaces that wouldn't necessarily fall inside of the construct of masculine in the same way. And so that's how I was using feminine, like as a like a balance in the circle as opposed to a linear, which there's room for both, but we've given value in the hierarchy of the masculine.
0: And I misspoke before when I said female, I meant feminine. Having worked a little bit on the Brahmaviharas, Viharas, it feels right to me that developing those mental skills would create Fertile conditions for gratitude, but I am having trouble articulating why that would be
1: particular difficulty why that might be so then you're popping back up into the intellect trying to figure it out, as opposed to having faith that that is a natural organic occurrence that happens that may not even have access to being able to put out there in words in the way in which you're searching to do.
0: If you're saying that I have a tendency to pop back up into the intellect, I'm going to second that.
1: Not just seven
0: intellect. days a week.
1: <laughs> In some ways, it's a good skill because it's gotten you where you are. So they're like, like, let's acknowledge that and have gratitude for that. And then <laughs> let, <laughs> let's look to see how you can, as you've been doing. I mean, I know you do this. I've listened to other podcasts that you've done with people. And I know what, you know, a little bit about what you're a stand for. And so. You know, this bringing the integration or bringing the balance there is a good thing, but that's not a bad thing. We just, just the fact that we think that that's the only truth, that's the bad thing. (laughs) That we think that that's the only truth or that we give that value um, to that over other. Kind of like, I don't know if you remember many years ago, I don't know how long, maybe 15, 20 years ago now, when the whole arising started being spoken into the culture about emotional intelligence, we're up to for many, many years. You know, when you and I were little, and they had IQ t- like IQ. It was intellectual IQ. Then they started discovering, oh, there's actually some other things that are really important here. So I think we're kind of like in that domain in terms of the balancing and the awareness of the um, yin and yangness working together to bring understanding to bring. Ease or peace to bring calm, to bring gratitude. Yeah,
0: I was talking to a uh, fellow wealthy white male the other day. I won't name him because uh, <laughs> he didn't, I didn't ask permission. But he used a phrase, and I'm picking up on what you talked about with emotional intelligence. He used a phrase that I really resonated with for myself because I felt like it described me too. He said, "For much of his life, he had been an emotional imbecile."
1: Mm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Was underdeveloped. But I bet he was really, really had lots of muscles in the domain of intellectual. Another thing to have gratitude for. And he recognized that. <laughs> and sounds like he's doing something about it.
0: Yes. Again, I won't name him, but he's doing a lot. and Great. He's doing a lot. Great. Uh, and. It's a worthy, you know. It's if if you had said to me 15 years ago, "Hey Dan, you want to work on addressing your emotional imbecility?" I would have said, "No, where's the closest bar?" It just didn't seem like an attractive project. But yeah, it's it's just increasingly obvious to me that, but as much as you, those of us who tend toward the intellect might want to deny the reality of emotions, like you ignore them to your peril because they're there operating and you're either owned by them or you're going to develop some intimacy, warmth, friendliness, understanding, etc., etc.
1: Yeah, and even even um maybe one step further and again this is just occurring to me now but even like emotions being another iteration or a parallel, that's a better word, a parallel iteration to thoughts because emotions can drag us into real sorrow, real challenge. And, And so I guess what I'm speaking to is the effort and conditioning or cultivation of those being states, not anything that is like to me or for me, compassion Love, joy, equanimity are being states. They're not a thought and it's not an emotion. They're actually states of being. And um, when we can kind of hang out there more than not, because you know, it's we're all works in progress. But when we can hang out there more than not, then all the emotions, all the thoughts, all the feelings, going back to what you had underscored in terms of the worldly winds, come and go, come and go. And we can just engage like it's on the conveyor belt and you pick out what you think you want to do something with or you let it go by.
0: Much more of my conversation with Dara Williams right after this. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What is the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Many of us spend our lives wishing we had more time therapy can help you figure out what matters to you so you can do more of it this is something i've spoken about at length for many years with with my therapist as somebody with a pronounced tendency toward overscheduling, uh working on figuring out what i care most about what matters most to me has been very useful when it comes to setting priorities if you are thinking of starting therapy give BetterHelp a try it's entirely online designed to be convenient flexible and suited to your schedule, learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com happier today to get 10% off your first month. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. This is perhaps a bit idiosyncratic, but one of the experiences that my son, Alexander, loves is mini-golf. We recently went to a mini-golf-themed uh, restaurant in, uh, in Denver where we were traveling. And uh, when we go to Montauk, which is our favorite beach town here on the East Coast, we play mini-golf at Putt-Putt all the time, Alexander, his buddies, me. And in one way or another, these experiences are really what become the the most memorable and important part about taking trips. Which brings me to Viator, which is a website and app where you can book travel experiences, everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. With over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries, there's something for everyone. I have used Viator myself. I find it to be incredibly helpful. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. You mentioned that we're all works in progress. I'm going to ask you a question that I like to ask when I get an established, esteemed teacher on the show. Sometimes I like to ask this question. Shout out to my colleague, um, Jay Michelson, who is the one who gave me the idea to ask this question. But I'm curious for you, what is the edge or are the edges in your own practice slash life right now?
1: Actually, I think the edge for me right now would be, be moderation and self-care in the swirl of turmoil and chaos. Like this heart really wants to be of help to whomever it comes in contact with, whomever. Um, But one of the challenges, it's kind of like my biggest challenge (laughs) right now is Really being mindful and committed, not just being mindful, but placing it in the domain of an intention and a commitment to manage commitments, responsibilities, time in such a way that I'm, at the end of the day, used up, but not fatigued. And so... I'm doing better. And actually, I think that this is one of the byproducts for many of us when we take a look, or when we take a look a couple of years from now, to be able to mine mine, M I N E, mine what was seen as helpful or useful coming out of these times. The pandemic afforded for me personally an opportunity to reset because I was, you know, I was flying here, flying there, flying everywhere, teaching, you know, I'm also a therapist. I have a therapy practice, just a a lot, 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 lot. And there was constant and perpetual fatigue. And so that's antithetical to the practice that I'm engaged with, to what I teach, right? Right. So it might not have been doing harm to others, but it was certainly doing harm to me (laughs) to be in that state. And so really looking at both the day-to-day kind of daily kinds of ways that I need to guard some possibility for pause and space, but also, uh, and that's like the literal pause and space, but also the psychological and emotional pause and space because when i do that when i take the space when i take the pause it actually supports me in being more present when i then move forward again or you know yeah so that, i think that's the most challenge i'm i've been like you when uh things took a turn i made the i came to the understanding and conclusion very early that i really needed to take on equanimity practice like that was going to be the thing that supported me in moving through difficult times. And that was pivotal for my practice in terms of really bringing that into existence for me. So I'm fortunate. I'm, I'm fortunate. I have a lot of gratitude <laughs> that I don't have a lot of places in my life that are disturbed, that are where there is ill-easiness Um, about it and, uh, except for this one. And, and part of that also is predicated on acceptance. You know, looking at some of the earlier things we talked about today, it's like things come and go, days are up and down, and not judging that. Like when I have a day where, like yesterday, yesterday I was on nine Zoom calls. Hadn't done that in a little bit. And at the end of that day, I was like, okay, we're we're not going to do this again. And to make that statement, we're not going to do this again, calls for me taking a stand for how I schedule stuff and really being forthright and direct with people. Like, and I've started verbalizing that, like, one of my commitments is to create spaciousness (laughs) and uh, a little bit of freedom for myself. So, you know. I'll get back to you in 3 days as opposed to the next hour. Yeah, so that's what I'm working with. That's what I'm working with in terms of challenge, which in the scheme of things isn't too bad, maybe.
0: <laughs> no, I can see it's it's an issue, but I can see why you would have gratitude that there aren't more you know painful issues, but nonetheless balance is a huge issue for so many of us. And so just to get detailed. You talked about practicing equanimity. Was there a particular kind of meditation you were doing that you could describe that people that could then do in their own practice?
1: Yeah, you know, that's the question that's asked of me all the time. So I'm going to have to actually, I'm not going to do it now in our time, but I'm actually have to sit down and dissect that for myself. But the way that I talk to people about that time period, it really was a combination of So, you know, a lot of the ways that Brahmavihara practice is taught is to use verses or statements that clarify and bring forward the energetics of the particular Brahmavihara. With equanimity, that has never been so helpful for me. Like that has not engendered for me the Brahmaviharas and in particular the um, equanimity practice. And so... I guess I'd say the two ways that I worked with equanimity practice myself, it may appeal to an other mind, a mind that isn't so structured and finding it useful. Words, sometimes I don't find words useful. So the two things that I did that I I would do is to really be checked in and grounded with what's happening with the body, you know, which is one of the practices So what's happening in the body in relationship to some circumstance, some situation, some individual? What is the bodily response to that? And assessing if it's a bodily response, which is on the scale of not helpful, not skillful, unwise, then actually sensing into a sense of balance and again, using the body. So I guess the answer to your question is really bringing forward engagement with the body and reading the energetics at any given time. And then also paying attention to using the thoughts as a guidepost and noticing when these thoughts of aversion might be present, um, <laughs> thoughts of... Um, Basically, anything that might fall under the rubric of aversion, which could be anything from annoyance and frustration to outright rage in relationship to any circumstance, condition, or person, and then intervening or engaging um, with that thought without judgment and without assessing that something's wrong and looking to see both the connection or component to the body was there with that thought and actually Intervening and almost like plucking a weed out, like that thought of aversion, that thought of imbalance, plucking that out and kind of reasserting or reinserting a thought of equanimity and balance. And it's not, I'm trying to, because here again, I'm in the domain of non word because it's really a felt sense. There I go. It's a felt sense that gets created in relationship to that thought. But then after working with that a little bit, it wasn't even about plucking that thought out and reasserting or inserting a felt sense of balance, but it was actually dropping down underneath that thought to see what might be there. And sometimes it was just totally a reaction. Sometimes it was like not anything else. It was Just the body's reaction to a circumstance or a situation. But sometimes there were some other thoughts that I needed to address that were underneath there and then engaging with that. Now, there are words, there are verses that can be used with equanimity practice, but they don't work for me. (laughs) And I can't even um, say them to you correctly. So I won't without going and getting them. But there are for people that that's a more viable way of engaging. Um, and I think the reason that the words for the equanimity practice didn't work for me other than the fact that it was more verbiage for me to engage with and utilize was also that it didn't feel to me. I'm not saying that this is true, but it didn't feel to me like relational. And for the most part, equanimity practice is about relationship to something, whether it's a person or a situation or a circumstance or even some material thing. It's about that relationship that something in the relationship in the in-between is causing the imbalance or the aversion.
0: Just to repeat it back to you, it sounds like what I was asking you how to practice equanimity. You were saying, look, in many of the classical Brahma Vihara practices, we use phrases. So, for example, with metta or loving kindness, it's may you be happy, may you be safe, healthy, live with ease. Karuna or compassion, it's may you be free from suffering. And mudita, may your happiness increase, et cetera, et cetera. There are phrases that go with equanimity practice, but for you, they don't really work. So, you listed two ways in which you practice equanimity. One is just being aware of the body as a feedback, and the other is to see your thoughts to the best of your ability as they arise and to not drown in them so much, but to catch them before they produce a bunch of emotions that might be the opposite of equanimous. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good feedback loop there.
0: I think I mentioned this in a recent episode where I was on a meditation retreat just a couple of weeks ago we were really encouraged to view whatever was coming up in our mind as nature this is a point we've already hit in this discussion, but for me the just the viewing it as nature, all the tiny but very personal-seeming horrors of my own mind, just to view, oh yeah, me trying to do a mortgage calculation in my head or me trying to plot revenge on some colleague or whatever, that's just nature, the results of causes and conditions. For me, just that produces equanimity.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the non-judgment of that nature.
0: Just the well, seeing it as nature, yes, it is lax judgment. I mean, it's right. You're removed from the cycle of the judgment. It's like, oh, this is of course.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and that's just how it is. That's just how it is. And then it has no, it doesn't get any stickiness. It doesn't get any energy on it. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can um just let it be. Or again, ascertain whether there's some further inquiry or anything that needs to
0: happen there
1: with that thought.
0: Right, because it's like the conveyor belt analogy used before. Some of the things that pass by us on the conveyor belt, we do want to pick up and act mm-hmm. on. We do want to use our natural wisdom to mm-hmm. discern. Some of this stuff is, isn't is just something, we just a passing show we want to let go of. Actually, we do want to pick up and act on it. But viewing it with some nonjudgmental remove, some warmth, some perspective is what allows you to interact with a conveyor belt skillfully.
1: Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: It's been such a pleasure to have you on the show and I hope it's not the last time. Is there something I should have asked but but failed to ask?
1: Hmm. Nothing comes to mind in terms of something you should have asked or failed to ask. And I think... Um, maybe not so overtly, but, um, just to underscore that in our being together, there was quite a bit of the Brahma Vaharas operating, you know? So I just, who you are and, and what you're up to and who I am. And I'm sure this is, is so with, with many of your guests, many of the teachers that you engage with, but that's really, that is it in action. Like that is, The practice there, right there. So that's the only thing I would underscore.
0: (laughs) That might have been the best moment of my day.
1: (laughs) Well, very good to have been a contribution to that.
0: If people want to learn more about you, and I suspect they will, how can they do that?
1: Unfortunately, I have not entered fully the world of social media. I'm working on it. But the best way right now is can Google me or get me through Insight Meditation Society, where I teach retreats, or New York Insight. Those are the two best places to find me. But just put in Dura Williams, and um, I seem to pop up. So, yeah.
0: Dura, thank you, and I'm I'm sending you love.
1: Thank you, Dan. Take good care. This has been really a pleasure.
0: Thanks again to Dura Thanks as well to everybody who works so incredibly hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, and Lauren Smith. Our senior producer is Marissa Schneiderman. Kimi Regler is our managing producer. And our executive producer is Jen Poyant. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, Uh, You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.
2: If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx you know. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi.